in the weeks leading up to Easter, we're focusing on the cross, on Jesus in his last days on the cross and the words that he spoke there. You may have noticed earlier, if you're familiar with the song, Were You There? We left out the last verse there. We just want us to think and dwell on the cross. Sometimes we're in a rush to get to Easter and to the resurrection. And not that that's not important. It's a central element of our faith. But I want us to take time and think about the cross. So we're going to reflect again, as we have been the last few weeks, on some of these words that Jesus spoke from the cross. These last final words. And I want you to imagine this scene now that we just heard from the Gospel of John. And even the contrast that happened in that scene. Remember, crucifixion was the way the Romans executed those who were rebels. Those who stood up against the power of the state. Crucifixion was a way to humiliate, a way to degrade, a way to demonstrate the power of Rome. And in this scene here, we see these soldiers. Soldiers who were trained to kill soldiers who had practiced this many times to make sure their victims suffered, to make sure that everyone knew who was in charge. And we see in some sense their callousness. As here are three men near the end of their life, three men suffering in agony. And they're at the foot of the cross, gambling, fighting over who's, who gets whose clothes. And then in the end, this one garment, this seamless garment, which they didn't want to rip apart, they're throwing dice to see who will take that. And so we put this in contrast, these men who are doing this with Jesus hanging on the cross. And the words that he speaks, not trying to profit, not trying to exercise power, but instead words he speaks. A few weeks ago we looked at one of those words was, Father, forgive them. And so we see in the cross that one of the things that happens as Jesus dies on the cross is we are forgiven. That through Jesus' death on the cross, we find forgiveness. That God forgives our sin. Jesus also spoke and said to one of those rebels that was hanging beside him, Today you will be with me in paradise. A reminder that another thing that happens at the cross is Jesus reconciles us and brings us back into relationship with God. And that through the cross and then through the resurrection... We have this promise, this hope, this joy of living with God in his presence. And then we come to these words today where he says to these two standing there. You notice most of the crowd described are women standing there. But there's at least one of the men and he says, woman, here is your son and here is your mother. And it's about the nature of coming, becoming a part of God's family. So I want to do a little bit of background talking here about families and how that works. So we're going to throw out some big words. You don't need to remember any of those. There won't be a quiz at the end. But in the times of Jesus, also often referred to as a patriarchal society. And I mean, the father was the center of the family. And so everything, he was in charge of the family, ruled over it. And so things revolved around the father and the family. It was also a patrilineal family, which meant that everything was traced through the descendant of the, the male, the senior male in the family. And so this was an important part of it. But the other word, the big word we want to think of is patrilocal, which means that everything revolved around the homes and the way they worked. Now, we live in a society where we're anxious. When kids grow up, we want them gone, right? I mean, we've got this expression that's become um, popular or, or come in, like, you heard of the phrase boomerang kids? 
The idea is like they leave the house and then they come back. Well, that was the way they did things in the times of Jesus. It wasn't something surprising. It wasn't something that everybody looked and they said, oh, have you heard Jacob about Jacob? His, his kids moved back in. That was the way it worked. They lived in these houses. And I forgot to get the slide put up here. But, but in the houses, there was typically the ground floor where the animals were. And then there was a second floor where the people lived. And, and the houses were added onto. And so oftentimes in a house, it was not unusual in a house to have three or four generations living within that household. And so even when we think of the words of Jesus earlier in the Gospel of John, when he's having his final words with his disciples, and he says to his disciples, in my Father's house, there are many rooms. And now in some of our, our hymns, we've kind of talked about mansions over the hilltop and all, because that's not what Jesus was talking about. What Jesus was talking about was this image of a house with many rooms, of becoming, again, part of the family, of being a part of this family of God. And so when Jesus talks about family, he's talking about moving in to this household. But there's another phrase that I want us to think about in terms of this family thing that becomes important for Jesus. And this is the idea of a kinsman redeemer. And it's a, it's a thread that runs through Scripture. And so there's several stories. And if we had a couple hours, well, Tom says in Africa that the services go a couple hours. And he said that's one of the highlights and he misses it. And so I thought, he's saying, no, he didn't. He doesn't, he, that's one thing he doesn't miss is the extended services. So, we all, but the Kinsman Redeemer. So there are a couple stories. I'm just going to highlight real quick. And if you're not familiar with those stories, we can talk more about them or I encourage you to read them. One is the story of Ruth. Um, found in the book of Ruth. Yeah, surprisingly enough. So there's a book of Ruth. And so Ruth and Boaz, and so long, elaborate story. But near the end of the story, Boaz becomes a kinsman redeemer. He's the family member who rescues Naomi and Ruth out of the circumstances which they've been put, restores their lost kinship circle and protects their legal rights. He takes a financial risk and brings her into his household. She, as a woman, has no family. She has no husband. She has no heir, which means she is lost and alone. She has nothing for her in society. But what Boaz does is he makes that risk of making her part of his family, which means then she will have heirs who will take part of that and potentially even part of his inheritance. But he takes a risk and lays in the line, becomes her redeemer and restores her and gives her returns to her legal rights and becomes a kinsman redeemer. Another story, book of Genesis, Abraham. Abraham has a, a nephew named Lot and Lot, Lot's got all kinds of problems. But one, at one point, Lot runs off and he gets captured. And Abraham very well could have said, well, oh, that's Lot. You know, let him, he made his own bed, he's going to lie. But Lot but Abraham instead chooses to rescue Lot. He gathers his men and he goes and rescues him. And the language the scripture uses is he redeems Lot. He brings him back. Third story, real quick, is the story of Hosea, found in the book of Hosea. And so Hosea, there's this long story where God tells Hosea to marry this woman who is a prostitute. And so he marries her. And then she goes and she returns back to the, her old way of living. 
And then he goes back, and, and you have to think of and imagine this humiliation of this man, a prophet of God, one who is looked upon, and he is told by God, and the people in this small town that he lives in, watch him walk down to the brothel and return with a woman whom he makes his wife. And then, in this little town, as we know how it goes in small towns, they all realize that she has returned to her old way of living. And then they watch once again as this man of God goes down and purchases or redeems this woman back into his household. And so this idea, we hear the word redemption. And it's kind of this Bible word, but it's a powerful thing. And one uh, writer says it is. Redemption is the means by which a lost family member was restored to a place of security within the kinship circle. It was the means by which a lost family member was restored to a place of security within the kinship circle. And so as we think about Jesus on the cross, what does he do? He goes and he finds lost family members and at great price to himself, redeems or restores them to the kinship circle. So when Jesus looks down from the cross and sees this woman who was by blood his relative, his mother, and this disciple whom he loved, and he says now, woman, this is your son, and here is your mother. He's saying, I'm creating a new family. I'm restoring you to this family. And I'm creating a new family and making this clear that he is bringing us. So by his death, he forgives us, he restores the relationship with God, but he also makes us part of a new family. That we become a part of a family. And so in some churches, if you're familiar, what? We talk about, some people refer to each other as brother and sister. And that's what we are. And we're not just brother and sister with those people sitting inside the walls of Fruitland Covenant Church. But the church around the world, all those who call on the name of Jesus, are our brothers and sisters. And so we hear that in these words of Jesus, which seem kind of in the midst of all these things. One, we see his care and his compassion for those around him that he, he says, take care of one another, which is part of what it means to be family. But he also says you're bringing in. And so that's what I want us to think about for the remainder of our time is thinking about what does it mean to be family? And we've talked about this before and, and care for it. Um, but one is... Um, think about how we care for one another. One of the things I want to think about, first say first of all is a lot of that happens here. I've seen that happening in this church and it makes me happy. It makes me proud to be a part of this when I see our church caring for one another as family. And it makes me even more happy and more proud when I don't have anything to do with it. When someone gets sick or something happens and weeks later they're telling me, say, oh, there were some people and they brought by meals. And I think, how did that happen? It happened because we have people in the congregation who are paying attention and who are caring for one another. There's people gathering together, taking that effort for, to make sure Ellen Conklin is able to get a ride here on a Sunday morning. Things like that, and, and the stories are many, but to think about the ways we're already living as family. But I want us to think about a few other things. One is, and I've talked about this and because it's so important to me, this idea of generations, of interacting with generations. So I want to 
There was a study done um, by the Barna Group. The Barna Group is a, a research organization that focuses on the church and the world. And they looked at what they called resilient disciples. They've written a, a series, David Kinneman has written a series of books about people who've lost, left the church, one called You Lost Me. But then they wrote another one called um, Faith in Exile. And what the Barna Group and Kinneman did was they did extensive research. They don't just write a book and say, well, I talked to a couple people. They research and interview thousands of people. And then what they did was they interviewed thousands of 18 to 29-year-olds. And they interviewed a specific group of 18 to 29-year-olds. They went to 18 to 29-year-olds who had grown up with a faith and who'd grown up going to church. And they wanted to see what happened, had happened to these 18 to 29-year-olds and where they were at in their life. And of those 18 to 29-year-olds who had grown up in church, about 2 in 10 no longer identified as Christians. About 4 in 10 identified as Christians, but most, or many had not attended church in the last month, and most had not attended church in over 6 months, and really had no practice. So, they still referred to themselves as Christians, but there was really nothing that demonstrated the way they were living. About another um, three in ten described themselves as Christian, but they still really weren't intentional, and they still really, when talking about their faith, really didn't meet some of the marks of what it looks like to be a faithful disciple. When it came down to there, there was one in ten of these 18 to 29-year-olds who had grown up a church who attended church regularly, trusted in the Bible, were committed to Jesus, and wanted to see the world changed. One in ten. And then what David Kinneman and his group did was find out what was it about these disciples, what he called the resilient disciples, that kept them in the faith. And they found five things. But I just want to highlight one of those five things. One of those five key practices was the presence of meaningful intergenerational relationships. So in this survey of thousands of 18 to 29-year-olds, of the 1 in 10 who had, remained, who had grown up in church and who remained faithful and committed to church and were living their faith out in so many different ways, one of the five key pillars to making that happen was faithful and meaningful intergenerational relationships. If you look around the church, we have multiple generations here. And so what I would encourage as we think about this idea of family is think about what are ways we can live that out. Because I am positive that as you are sitting here and you think about the young people who are a part of our congregation, the little ones who come up front, the older ones who are parts of youth group and stuff, I know that in your heart, your desire is that when they are 18, when they are 25, when they are 29, that they are continuing to faithfully walk with Jesus. Now, you may not be a Sunday school teacher. You may not be their parents. But I want you to think about what are ways that you can interact? What are ways that you can have a, a meaningful relationship with them? Now, you can't have a meaningful relationship with every single one of them. But we can begin getting to know their names, making sure they're welcome, making sure they're loved, finding out who they are. Now, I know it's, especially as they get older, it's not always easy to talk to kids. 
you know, you talk to high schoolers, if you sit down with high schoolers and ask them, sometimes you don't get a whole lot, do you? Sometimes you get a whole lot. It all depends on the student. But find ways to talk to them. Think about things you do. And it doesn't have to be a meaningful intergenerational relationship. doesn't mean you need to sit down with them and study the Bible with them. There are many different things you can do. Think about what are the things in life that you like to do. Do you like to bake bread? Maybe say, invite somebody over and say, hey, why don't you come over? I'm baking some bread today. Do you like to fish? Maybe you take somebody out on the fishing boat. Invite them to be a part of your life and to learn what it is because some are lucky and blessed to be able to live near family and have family around. Others, the generations of their family are living away or no longer alive. So are there ways you can be involved in meaningful intergenerational relationships with the people around you and with these young folks in them? And not only will they learn from you, but you will learn from them and find ways to grow. The other thing, so that's part one, one thing we can think about. The second is, how do we care for people who are not a part of what we call a traditional family? Because if we create family, and if we are family, sometimes in church we use that word family, and sometimes in society we use the word family. And what does that mean? That means husband, wife, and some kids. stuff. But we realize that not everyone exists in that kind of family that there are single parents, and then there are singles. And so we need to think beyond, like, how do we continue to act as family? And so one story I was thinking of was the story of a man named Wesley Hill. Um, and I've been reading a couple of his books. Uh, one's called Washed and Waiting. One is called um, Spiritual Friendship. And Wesley Hill is, is a committed Orthodox Christian but has same-sex attraction. Some might identify him as gay. But Wesley Hill has realized that that is not the call of Jesus. The call of Jesus is a monogamous relationship between man and woman, but that's not his feeling. So instead of that, what Wesley Hill is committed to is a life of celibacy. He said this is the faithful path in, as in his understanding to walk the life of Jesus is a life of celibacy. Wesley's probably in his early, late 30s, early 40s. Um, but for many people grow up and they have visions of what it what, of having a family, right? Now Wesley's growing up, I'm saying growing up, he's a professor at a university, for goodness sake. So Wesley is living his life, but he doesn't have a family as it's typically thought of. But what he has experienced is the people in his church making him family. He's experienced times where people with husbands and wives and their kids have said, hey, we're going on a vacation. Why don't you come along? He actually lives with another family who are now his family. He lives in as a part of their household and interacts with their kids on a regular basis. And so I want us to think about ways, and that's just one example. That's someone within the LGBTQ yeah, yeah, LGBTQ community. And so thinking about that's one way, but are there other ways as we look around our congregation, around our community, how can we be family together? 
when it doesn't always necessarily look like a traditional family. Last thing I want us to think about is, as Bob alluded to and even as Rhonda alluded to, that in this current time as the COVID-19 pandemic is, um, we are facing this event in our country, that how can we be family to one another in the midst of this? What are the ways and what might it look like to be family to one another? What are the ways we put the needs of others ahead of our own? And so I want to suggest a few, but then I want to see if maybe we can take just a couple minutes and think together what some of those ways might look like. Some things I've seen other churches doing, one is even grocery shopping for folks. The ability to say, especially for some of our older folks or those who are at high risk for various reasons, and there are various people at risk for different reasons, if you have a suppressed immune system, for whatever reason, due to an autoimmune disease, due to cancer therapy, due to any number of reasons, a suppressed immune system, you need to be even more careful in avoiding public spaces. For those who are 60 and over, I think there's a couple of you here, you are in a higher risk category. And so maybe you might be a little more hesitant to go out and go to the store. And so are there ways we could be together where someone could say, here's a list, would you go to Meyer for me and pick these things up for me? Or go to the pharmacy and, and get my things. I think about things like childcare. I know we have enough families who, in which both parents work. Schools are closed for several weeks. My guess is, not easy to find a daycare at this moment, is it, John? Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, because everybody, and I don't know if daycares are, so what do parents do who have kids and they both need to work? Does a, does a parent have to take time off? And so are there ways we can help and participate in that? Are there ways we can help families with that? Can we find creative ways to stay connected? Rhonda mentioned the folks who are in nursing homes, and many of the nursing homes have restricted not just for a while it was limited visitation, and now in some cases it's no visitation. One of our members, Roger Felt, my hand goes this way because that's where he sits, so he sits over here usually. Um, do we all look, right? Roger is in the skilled nursing facility up in Whitehall, formerly Heartland, and he is not allowed any visitors at this point. Roger suffered a stroke a couple weeks ago and desperately needs people around him. He needs his family, not just Tosh, Tanya and Tasha and, and Cheryl and the rest of the family who go and visit him, but he needs us. And so are there ways we can communicate? Now it's not easy. I know he has a phone and he has an iPad. And even just to talk to, um, if you have questions, you can talk to his granddaughter, Tasha, and find are there ways you can call or can you draw a picture? Can you do something to let him know that he is not alone? So what are the ways we can care for one another as, our, as family. And then even beyond that, we talked some at our council um, meeting on Friday night we had, and we'll have another meeting. You know, what are other ways we can care for those in our community? But I'm curious now, um, since we're here together as family, what are other things that you think about? What are ways we can make sure, and, and maybe even beyond, I mean, I'm talking within the scope of the current kind of 
crisis and things going on, COVID-19, but there might be ways beyond that. Um, but what are ways we can care for one another as a family? Um, and then I would also encourage you, if you know of specific things, if you know of specific people, because sometimes we're hesitant to ask for help. Sometimes we're, we're not so concerned about it. But I want you to feel free, if you need help, to please call someone. It doesn't have to be me. It could be Bob or it could be just someone else in the congregation that you feel comfortable with, that you feel confident in, to call and say, I really need some help. It might be just my job, my hours have been cut back at work, and I don't have a whole lot of money for food right now. We have a food pantry. We also have a benevolence fund at our congregation. Once a month at our, when we do communion, we have an offering we take, and that money goes to help people in our congregation who are in need. You might be struggling, or someone else might be struggling to say, I don't know how I'm going to pay my electric bill this month, or I don't know how I'm going to pay the heating bill, or I don't know how I'm going to do fill in the blank because of things that are going on right now. And we recognize that because of um, the, the situation, because of the social distancing and stuff, the businesses all over are being affected in different ways. Now, I don't know all the details, but if, when, you, when a school closes, that affects a whole bunch of people in different ways. When people aren't going out to certain things and, and they're limiting places, you know, imagine the movie theaters are pretty empty right now. The people in the hospitals are overwhelmed or maybe a little bit worried, maybe not here but in other places. So what are ways that we can be family to one another? Or are there other things that you think about in ways that we as Fruitland Covenant Church can be family and help one another in this time? And so my prayer for us is that we might do that in this time. That we might see the love that Jesus showed and then we might find ways to show that same love to others. It will look different for each and every one of us. But may we find strength in Christ to be family to one another. Not just now, but for the future. And might we find strength in Christ to love our neighbors as we love ourselves.